This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Chavar tells us, It's better to say fewer of the Kinnites with Kavana than to say a lot of them without Kavana. Obviously, it's better to say all of them with Kavana. We're going to endeavor today to say approximately 14 Kinnites up until going to Chatzais and explain them and elucidate the kinnis. We're sitting here on a beautiful sunny day in August. It's 2,000 years since the Churban, and we're still crying over what happened. The question is why? Why are we still crying over what happened 2,000 years ago? What are we crying about? What are we looking to accomplish? After all, it's been going on for many, many years and we obviously have not accomplished what it is that we are supposed to accomplish. We all know these troubles started many, many years ago, still in the Midbar, shortly after we came out of Mitzrayim. We were about to go into Eretz Yisrael, and we asked Moshe to send in Meraglim. The Meraglim went, and they came back, and they gave us a very negative report on Eretz Yisrael. We were so sad and so scared, we went back to our tents and we started crying. The Gemara tells us in Tainus, That day was Erev Tishabav. You cried a cry for nothing. I will give you something to cry about for the generations. The question is, why is this happening? Is Hashem just being spiteful to us? After all, Hashem is saying, you cry for nothing, I'll give you something to cry about. What does one have to do with the other? And for how long? For how long will this happen? Hashem said, you cry for nothing, I'll give you something to cry about. It's been over 2,000 years. And Hashem Rafal Hirsch explains that tears are the sweat of the soul. Which means, when a person cannot express himself anymore, is when he uses tears. For example, if someone's very happy, and he can't express himself so much, he starts crying. He laughs, he laughs, and then he starts crying. If someone's very sad, so sad that he can't express himself, he starts crying. A person cries when he realizes there's nothing left that he can do. And that's when he starts crying. Those are the sweat, that's the sweat of the soul. So therefore, when a person is in a situation and he realizes, I did my ishtadlis, I did everything I can do, I can't do anymore. Once a person realizes that he reaches that situation, he's supposed to think to himself, Hashem, I did everything I can do. And now only you could accomplish this. And that's what tears are. When a person realizes that I can't do anything anymore and I completely rely on Kadesh Baruch Hu, that is the purpose of tears. And by the Miraglim, the Yidin cried because they were scared to go into Eretz Yisrael. They could have cried and said, Kadesh Baruch Hu, we know you promised us to go into Eretz Yisrael. On the other hand, we see that it's impossible for us to do it. So they had a choice. They could have said, look, it's impossible, we can't do it, it's not going to happen. Or they could have said, Kadesh Baruch Hu, we obviously can't do it on our own. We're going to go and fight, but Hashem, it's up to you. 
Those were the tears they should have had, tears of trust in Hashem. And instead, they cried, they said, even Hashem can't bring us in. And therefore, they did not use the powers of the power of tears properly. So Hashem says, You cried, you used the power, the tremendous power of tears for nothing. Hashem says, This is not being spiteful, This is Hashem telling us, I will give you the opportunity to rectify that. I will give you the opportunity to go and to use tears properly. And that is what we are trying to do. We are trying to use a tear properly and to show that all is from a Kodesh Baruch Hu. We know the destruction of the first base of Migdash happened on Tisha B'av. The second base of Migdash, the destruction of the second base of Migdash was also on Tisha B'av. And as the Gemara tells us in Tainus Chavtes, And therefore, in our history, Tishabov is a, a sugal for unfortunate things to happen to Klai Yisrael. And we know even after the things that are listed by the Gemara, we had the Spanish Inquisition. You know, World War One was a harbinger of World War Two. Started also on Tishabov. In fact, World War One was so bad that if not for the worst atrocities of World War Two, all we would be talking about was World War One. That's how bad it was for the Yidden. World War Two unfortunately eclipsed that. And therefore the cherish of everything bad that happens, happens on Tisha B'av. And all is required from us is one tier to rectify that. And the question is, of course, could we really do that? Our generation is going to go and rectify the tears. Previous generations, the generation we just had recently, Moshe Feinstein. When Moshe Feinstein cried on Tisha B'av, he couldn't rectify it. And going back to Chavetz Chaim or the Chassam Seifer, the going, the Valshantav, I and mean, they couldn't do it, and we're going to do it. If you go back to the Rambam, to Rashi, to, to the Amaroyim, how do we think that we can do it? So it's interesting, they say over from the Tamidim of Kiva of the Chassam Seifer, that on Erev Tishabov, he would go to a room privately and he would stay there. And he would not allow anyone inside, not Talmidim and not family members. And he would stay there until the beginning of Tisha B'av. One year, one of his Talmidim said, you know, this is my Rebbe, I have to learn, I have to see what's going on, and I'm going to go in. The Talmud went inside, he hid inside the room, and he watched his Rebbe, the Hadagir of Sam Seifer. And he saw, he was sitting there, Anticipating already Erev Tisha B'av, anticipating Tisha B'av, he was sitting on the floor, and he was crying, crying copious tears for the Chorban. He was crying so many tears, he was able to collect these tears in a cup, and he filled up the cup. He said he couldn't see clearly if it was halfway or three quarters, but there's a sizable amount of tears inside there. And then by the Sudasam of Sekes, he would wash, he would dip his bread into the cup of tears. And he would eat it, fulfilling the exact words, I've eaten ashes like bread and mixed my drink with tears. And that's what he would do. Years later, that Talmud was there to move to Eretz And when he came to Eretz he was able to rent a small one-room hovel 
but he liked it so much because it had a view of the Harabayas. When it came to Tishva, that first year he was there, he realized that he has a tremendous opportunity to copy his Rebbe. And he was sitting by the, with the view of the Harabayas, and he sat down there at Tishva with his cup, and he's ready to start crying, and he was able to squeeze out just a few tears. And he thought to himself, my Rebbe, some Saif, was able to squeeze out a half a cup of tears, and I'm sitting here looking at the destruction of the Harabayas, and I can barely get out one tear. And that was then, so what are we supposed to do? The Talmud of Sam Sefer can barely edge out a tear. What are we supposed to do? You know, there was a, um, a family hiding by the Holocaust. And this family found a place to hide in one of the sewers. The Nazis in Machshmam didn't want to leave any Jew. And they would search everywhere. They would even search the sewers. They didn't want to go inside the sewer with the rats. So they would take the dogs and sniff around over there. If they thought something was there once in a while, they would throw down some dynamite. And there was a family with other people hiding inside a sewer. And they knew what to do in case the Nazis were coming to search. One time, they got the warning, the Nazis were coming, and they all ran to the place to search. And of course, among this family, there was a young child. And this young child was warned numerous times by his mother, when we're hiding, when the Nazis are looking for us, you cannot make a sound. This young child went to his place, and they were quiet. The Nazis came, they were searching, the dogs were barking up above by the street, sniffing around, and they were in their places inside the sewer, not making a sound. And they were there, they were there for over an hour and a half, when finally, finally, the Nazis and Machshima moved on. They waited another half hour, 45 minutes or so, and finally the person in charge said, okay, you can, you can move around now. The little young boy looks up at his mother, and he says, Ma, are they gone? His mother says, yes, yes, they are. He looks up at his mother, and he says, could I cry now? And she said, yes. That boy wanted to cry, but he didn't have the luxury of crying. We have the luxury of crying. The question is, are we going to cry? And of course the answer is, yes. Yes, we could. We could rectify the tears, even in our generation. The well-known answer the Sfasama says, that the Chazal tell us no Jewish tear, no Jewish genuine tear dissipates and just flies away. Hashem collects every single tear of every single Yid. He puts it in a flask in a cup. And the Tanoim and Amarayim filled up that cup a lot. And the Rishenim came, they filled it up even more. And then the, the, the Achreinim came, filled it up even more. Up until our generation, we can assume this cup is already filled to the top. It's already overflowing. It's heaping. We know that a heaping cup, all you need is one tear to make it overflow. And that's all we have to our generation. We have to squeeze out one more genuine tear. A tear that shows that we believe in Hashem. A tear that can rectify the Bechia Shekhinim of our great grandparents in the Dar Hamidbar. What happens if we can't? 
What happens if we still can't get out that one genuine tear? What happens if we can't do it? Baruch Hashem, many of us are living here in this country, and we have it relatively good. Sometimes hard to see what we're missing. And the Sassamas addresses that as well, and he says if a person doesn't know what to cry about on Tishabov, because we're so far removed from the Churban Beis that it doesn't really affect us, he says that person should cry for that reason alone. When you're sitting, when you're sitting now on the floor, and we're saying the kinnis, and we don't feel that emotion of what we're missing, that itself, the Sassamas tells us, is a reason for us to cry. Gifter, Roshiva of Gifter would often say that the whole year we cry for the Churban Beis Amigdash. But we do it silently. On Tishabov, it's so painful that we can't even hold ourselves in when we cry out loud. And that will go, that's what goes on on Tishabov. The Mikhash loser was once not well. The Munkach Rabbi was not well, it was the Munkach, and he had to go to the hospital in Budapest. So before the war, he traveled to Budapest, and he was admitted to the hospital. He was pretty ill, and he was, had to be there for a while, two, three weeks. After a few days, he calls over the doctor, a fellow named Professor Rosenthal, not a yid, and he's requested that he should be able to have a minion in the hospital, at least for Shabbos. So the doctor says, Rabbi, in the hospital, it's got to be silent. People are ill. No such thing. We cannot have it. And the Rebbe again asked him, please, please, you know me from years ago. Please, allow me to have a minion. So Professor Rosenthal actually didn't know the Rebbe from before. He respected him. He said, fine, you can have a minion, just you and nine other people. And you have to promise me something. You have to promise me that you're going to be completely silent. The and the Rebbe promised and they had a minion that Friday night the davening starts and within a few moments of the davening the Rebbe is screaming the Rebbe is screaming after davening was over somebody went and told the professor that there was loud noises coming and the professor runs into the room and he says Rebbe I don't understand why were you screaming you promised me you wouldn't scream so the Rebbe looks at him and says look you told me that there's no screaming in this hospital. I took it as an ironclad rule. But then, last night, I heard somebody screaming and yelling down the hallway. So I realized it's not such an ironclad rule. Maybe you shouldn't scream, but still you're allowed to. That's why I was screaming. He says, Rebbe, what are you talking about? The fellow last night down the room was crying. He is an Hungarian soldier. He had a terrible accident. By mistake, someone ran over his legs. And they were operating on him. He was in terrible, terrible pain that they had to amputate his legs. Of course he was screaming out. But a regular person shouldn't be screaming. He was screaming out of pain. So the mooncatcher looked at him and said, Ah, only you can understand when a person davens for Mashiach, for the rebuilding of the base of to be gathered together to Eretz and still... Another day comes and Mashiach is not here. Of course, the Yid is such pain, he has no choice but to cry out. And that was the Mikhasa Uzzah. Question is, what do we feel?
One last point before we begin. That interesting saying of not throwing out the perfect because of the good. And not throwing out the good because of the perfect. If someone could do something good, don't say I'm not going to do it at all because I, can only, I can't do it perfect. If I can't do it perfectly, I'm not going to do it. But the same with us. Even if a person can't go and start crying and realizing what he's missing, that doesn't mean he shouldn't attempt to do it and whatever he can accomplish. It's a well-known person in Eretz Yisrael, Chaim Weintraub. And he was, lives in, in near Haifa. He's involved with Kirov, among other assurance that he would give. At one time, unfortunately, his young child, three-year-old son, passed away. He was ill. He has upsharn. A few days later, he got ill, and he passed away. You can imagine the scene of the house, Shiva scene. How many parents sitting Shiva for a three-year-old child? And during the Shiva, six teenagers walked in. You can right away tell these teenagers were not from. But they came in with the yamaka perched on their head. They sat down. The wine trial acknowledged them. And after a few minutes, they were talking to each other. They stood up and they said, Weintraub, in the honor of the memory of your son, we all decided that this coming Shabbos, we're all going to keep Shabbos. We're going to keep all the locks of Shabbos this coming Shabbos. Weintraub was so excited, he stood up and he hugged all of them. And they left. After he left, one of the people there said, Weintraub, what's What's the big deal? They're keeping one Shabbos, and the Shabbos after that, they're never going to go back to their ways. So Chaim Weintraub turned to them and said, if somebody would come over to me and tell me that if I give him a certain amount of money, he can give me my son back, what wouldn't I give? I would give all the possessions I have to have my son back, even if it would be just for one day. To, to walk with him, to hold his hand, to sit him on my lap, to stroke his cheek. These boys are telling a Kodesh Baruch Hu, for one child they're going to come back to you. Do you know how precious it is to a Kodesh Baruch Hu? Even if it's only for one child. And that is what we should be thinking now as we start to say the Kinnis, that even if we can't go and, and fill up a cup of tears, even one tear, one genuine tear, would be very, very precious. Let us begin. First kinna we're going to say is kinna vav. First kinna. We look at the kinnis. Most of the kinnis were written by Rav Lazar Kalir. It's not exactly clear who Rav Lazar Kalir was. He lived somewhere between the second and seventh centuries. Now, those who say he was actually the son of of Shimon Bar Yechai. The Kinnah starts off, Shavas, everything came to a standstill. After the Yisrael was destroyed, Shavas, everything stopped. Everything came to a standstill. There was a world before the Chorban, and there was a world after the Chorban. Similar to today, you speak to people, it was before the Holocaust, it was after the Holocaust. The old world, this world. Shavas, Everything stopped. Everything came to a standstill. 
Surumeni Shemuni Oivrai. Turn away from me, those who are exiled made me here. And we go through the Kinnah, and the Kinnah says, over these things I cry, my eyes run with water. What's the Lashem Rabbim? Over these things I cry. It was the Churban of the Beis Hamikdash. The Beis Hamikdash was destroyed. That's one thing. I say over these things I cry. And the Medrash explains that they're crying for all the things that happened for the Churban Beis Hamikdash. They were crying for the shedding of the blood of all the tzaddikim that were killed. And they were crying for the abolition of the kahuna, of the malchus. And they cried for the cessation of Lima Taira that the destruction of the Beis Midrash brought with it. The Kinnah continues, On the surface of the Euphrates rivers, her pious ones were mutilated. The Medrash tells us that while Nebuchadnezzar was feasting over his victory on the boat, he saw the Levim and he told them to go and play instruments for him. The Levim heard this, to play instruments of the Beis Migdash for Nebuchadnezzar. They quickly went and they bit off their own thumbs in order not to be able to play for Nebuchadnezzar. The Kinnah continues, Kaili Lashmiya Barav Hagirmuni. I cried out loud for relief in Arabia because they crushed me. The Kinnah is telling us that they're being led to Babel as prisoners and the Arabs, our wonderful cousins, came over to us and they pretended to be concerned and they gave us food. They offered us food and drink. They gave us salty bread which made us very thirsty. And then they gave us canteens to drink. These big leather canteens full of water to drink. We took it, we opened it up. Unfortunately, instead of being filled with refreshing water, it was filled with stale air. And as we squeezed it in to drink the water and to gulp it down, it killed us. The Kinnah continues, Shachu v'nadu When we finally, when we rested after traveling, our captors fed us pebbles. What do they fed us pebbles? You can't feed somebody pebbles. So Hashem told the Nabi Cheskel, warn Klaishol, they better prepare cooking utensils to take along with them when they go to Gaulus. The reason for that was if they would actually have to prepare the utensils, they would realize this is real, this is going to happen. And yet, they mocked Cheskel. Nobody prepared anything and they made fun of him. Now, on the way into exile, they finally they had some wheat with them and they were able to stop and to bake some bread, but they had no utensils. So they had to dig a hole in the ground, put in the water and the flour, and mix it inside the ground. But of course, when they're mixing inside the ground, the stones went in with, together with it. And that's where the Kinyan ends. Ram Hashem, please look at, at, down at us, we are your nation, and remember what happened to us. You think about it. Where did the Levium get the, the courage, the gumption to bite off their own thumbs in order not to play for Nebuchadnezzar? How could, they, how could they do such a thing? And obviously the answer is that they felt the Churban. They felt it so real, they experienced it, 
and there was no way they can take the instruments from that they use in the base of to go and to, to play for Nebuchadnezzar. Forget about us understanding how they bit off their thumbs. It's just hard to us to, to, to picture something like that. We have a difficult time even hearing about it. And that should cause us more reason to be sad. They were so far removed that we have a difficult time understanding of what they were doing. Imagine a scene in a shiva home where a young mother passes away and there's four children. And there are four young boys. How painful it must be. But imagine if the youngest child is five years old. And it comes time to say Kaddish. And one of the older brothers goes over to the younger brother, to the five-year-old, and helps him along through the words of the Kaddish. And he starts laughing. And he starts laughing. Because it's funny, saying the words, he's giggling. Imagine all the crying that's happening now. That crying is not happening because he lost his mother. The crying is happening because his little child has no idea who his mother is. He had no chance to really get to know her. And that's what it is with us. If we're not crying for the Hurban, at least we should cry for not being connected to the base of Mikdash. And if in previous generations they were like the older brothers who knew what they were missing, they were able to dab for that, our generation perhaps is like that five-year-old. And we're not crying for what we're missing at the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash. Perhaps we're crying because we don't even know what it is that we're missing. As a well-known story of Shalom Shadron would often say, that the war, or the Six-Day War, when Kaisal got the ability to go back to the Kaisal, and the army came in, and people were, were crying by the Kaisal, and there were two soldiers sitting in the back, they were from Shemratzi here, they didn't know what was going on, what's the big deal about this wall, why everyone's crying, and they're sitting there, and all of a sudden one of the soldiers burst into tears. So his friend looks at him and says, Lama ta bocha? Why are you crying? And his friend looks at him and says, Ani bocha? I'm crying because I'm not crying. How could it be that I see all my brothers here and they're all crying by this place and I don't feel anything? It means I'm not connected with my brother. And for that, I'm crying. So here also we start to say this kinnis, we should realize that even if we don't know what we're missing with the Khurban of Baisimilash, we should cry because we don't know what it is that we're missing at all. Shabbat. The next kin we're going to say is Kin Yud Aleph. Yikainin Yermiyo El Yeshiyov. And this kin, this is perhaps the most important kin that we're going to be saying, and this kin was actually written by Yermiyo Anavi himself. And this kinna, he cries, Yumiyo cries over the death, the death of Melech Yeshio. Echa elai kanum elav, the shmoina shana hecha lidosh melechov. Go and cry for the one who was eight years old when he searched for Hashem.
Why does Yumiyo cry over this so much? After all, Yeshio was a king, it's very tragic, a king got killed. I'll explain soon how he got killed. But for this to write the whole king on the death of a king, every the death of every year is tragic, and the death of a king is also obviously very tragic. But to write a whole king on it, and the Pshan the king is that this was the last opportunity to prevent the Purvin by Yisrishim. And the death of Yeshiyahu presented us with the last, with the losing the last opportunity to prevent the Khurban Baisvishan. How did he die? So during a war, the Matriam were fighting against them and they shot arrows into him and that's how he died. What happened? So the Kinnis tells us that Yeshio's grandfather, his name was Menashe, Melch Menashe, Menashe ended up being a very evil and wicked king. He fell into the trap of Vaidazara. And he wasn't content with doing Avaidazara. He wanted all of Klaisol to do Avaidazara. And he was so much involved in Avaidazara, convincing people to do Avaidazara, he even placed Avaidazara in the Kaidish Kadashim. <coughs> he even placed him in the Kaidish Kadashim. At the end of his life, he attempted to do Chuba, but it was so pervasive, the, the, the Yetzirah for Avaidazara. He could not eradicate it. Eventually, when Menashe died, his son Amon became the king. His son Amon was like his father. He was also Balavite Zara. And because he grew up with it, he was a disgusting person. And, and, and everyone despised him. They hated him so much that after two years, his own guards assassinated him. This left Amon's son, Yeshiyahu, to be king. At that time, Yeshiyahu was only eight years old. He became king at eight years old, and he was a nice person. He kept the kingdom going, but he didn't know anything about Yiddishkeit really. During that time, Yirmiyahu's father, Chilkiah, Chilkiah was the king of And for the next 18 years, his life went on, and Yeshio didn't know anything about Yiddishkeit. One day, Chilkiah, king of was in the base of Migdash, and he was fixing things up, doing Bedeka bias, and he found the Sefer Terra. He found the Sefer Terra. He opens up the Sefer Terra, and he opens up to the place, and it's none other than the Techacha, which reads, Aurur Asher Lo Yokum as Divriya Terra Zeis, La Zeis Aisa. Cursed is those who do not keep the words of the Terra. He saw this, he ran over to Yeshio, at that time he was 25 years old, and he shows him the Sefer Terra. Yeshio was not a bad person, he didn't know about these things. And he, he sees the Terra, and Chilkio explains to him about the Terra and what it stands for, and what you're supposed to do. And right away he says, If that's what it says, we must keep what the Terra says. What happens, we go through the Kinnah, the Kinnah tells us, as much as he tried to go and to fix up the various of the generation stuck to him once a person starts with it's very very difficult to eradicate and one day he gets a message he tried but one day he gets a message from Pari Nevoi Pari Nevoi he was called that because he had a he used to, had a limp 
He sends a message to Yeshio and he says, Yeshio, I am going to travel to another country to wage war against them. It will be much quicker and much more cost effective for my army if we can pass through your country. Pass through it to so all we like to do is just pass through. And Yeshio refused. He refused. Why did he refuse? Because it says in the Apostle, a sword will not pass through your land. If the Yidin are doing the right thing, and they're behaving properly, a sword won't go through your land. Which he understood to mean, not that there just won't be war, but we won't even have to see another army passing through. And he said, therefore, no, you can't go through. Paranavai said, no, 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 you don't understand. I just want to pass through. I'm going to go on the roads. We're not going to ruin anything. We just want to pass through. And Yeshio refused. This time Yemiyo comes to Yeshio and says, you have to let him through. You have to let power in his army through. Because Klaistral is not on the level that you think they are. Why not? Because it continues in the Kino. Asher Komu Achar Delas Lizdar. They stood there Vedizar behind the door. What does that mean? That means when Yeshio did the right thing, and he searched out all the homes of Eretz Yisrael to eradicate the Zarah, he didn't realize how attached Nebuch, the Yidin, were to Vaidazara. And therefore, they would take their Vaidazara, slice it in half, place it onto their doors, and when they open the doors, you can't tell that's a Vaidazara. It looks like a handle or a fancy handle. Only once the doors close together, would you then have a full Vaidazara. And when the soldiers would come into people's homes searching, they wouldn't see anything. So Yeshua was convinced that Klaiso was on a very high level and he did not listen to Yermio. And the kinna continues because of that. Tevim Rahim Nikru Bishokhu Malach. They were called bad when they were supposed to be good. Mali Vilach Hayyan Salah. What do you have, me and you? Why do we why do we have to fight? The kinna continues. He says, no, I'm not going to go and allow anything to come through. In fact, he went over to Chulda Neviyah, and he asked her, he asked for a second opinion, and he got a second opinion. Chulda Neviyah said, don't listen to Pare, you don't have to let him, you don't have to let him through. And he did not let him through. Unfortunately, he did not listen to the words of Yermio. Because of that, Pare came and he said, if you're not going to let me through, I'm going to fight you. And he came and he started to fight with Yeshio. And Pare told all the soldiers to train all their arrows just on Yeshio, ignore everything else. And they started to shoot arrow after arrow at Yeshio. As the Kinnah tells us, they start to go and throw, throw arrows at him. And eventually, he was pierced with 300 arrows. And then, however, with his last breath left, Ruach Sefasov Hiftum Epiu, with his last breath out of his mouth, he said, Tzadiku Hashem, Kimurisi Piu. Hashem is the Tzadik, and I disobeyed what he said. And that's how he died. But because he died, acknowledging that he was wrong, that Hashem was correct, because of that, Yemiyon Novi said, that uh, the Hashem said that because of that the Beisimigdash, the destruction of the Beisimigdash was pushed off for 22 years 
because of all the, all the letters of the olive base that he lists to, to Hashem. And this is why Yemio cried, because Yemio says that this was the last opportunity we had to keep the, the to stop the destruction of the base of Yiddish. The next kin will be saying is Kinu Yudalid, Echo, Esasher Kuvar, Asuhu, Tova Many League Boys, Ishiyahu. What already has been done, Hashem demanded payment from us. He alluded to the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash, which made the world very empty. The Kinnah discusses the fact that even when the Beis Hamikdash was built, Hashem knew that it will eventually have to be have to be destroyed. The Kinnah says, "Az the Rasha Deiris Nitutsu Noida." From early on, the leaders of the generation knew it would be destroyed. Even before it was completely finished, they knew it would have to be destroyed. It will be built and destroyed, but then it will be rebuilt again at the end. The kidney continues. The destruction of the Beis was an accomplished fact. And therefore, Nebuchadnezzar was really just smashing something that was really already smashed. There was no Kedusha left in the Beis Hamidosh. He was merely knocking down wood and stones. And the reason for that is because the Shekhinah left it. It was just, just stones that were not the Shekhinah. In fact, when Nebuchadnezzar came, he was undecided where he should go. He was coming towards area. Should he go to Ertisrol? Or should he go to Amon? There are two countries that he needed to attack. He wanted to finish up to add to his kingdom. Should it be Yisrael or should it be Amon? So, he took out an arrow from his quiver and he shot it and it flew towards the south, towards Yisrael. He took another arrow and he shot it same direction as the other one and it turned and went to south towards Yisrael. He shot in all directions and they all went towards Eretz Yisrael and he said this is a sign obviously I must go and attack Eretz Yisrael and leave Amin for another time when Nebuchadnezzar arrived in Eretz Yisrael he sent his general Nebuchadnezzar with 300 mules each mule was loaded up with axes and these axes were not just regular axes they were hardened steel for the heads of the axe and they came to break open the gates to Yerushalayim they took the axe, started to hit the gate. They hit it so many times, the gate didn't open, but the axe broke. Another soldier came with another axe and started to hit, and his axe broke. They kept on going and going and going, not making a dent in the gates of Yerushalayim, until they went through all their axes, and they were all broken. Okay, they can't get in, they can't get in, and Muzaradin is ready to turn around. There was one more axe. He tells the soldier, give me the axe. He takes the axe, he lobs it. Just as a frustration, he just lobs it, tosses it at the door, and it broke open the door. And he realized that that is how he's going to get in now. But he also had another thought. When Abuzaradin saw that, he became a gear. He said, there's no way that Hashem is going to allow someone to break his house and not get punished. And Abuzaradin, the Gemara tells us, and Sanhedrin became a gear. And he lived the rest of his life as he did. 
is a very, very long kinna. The majority of the remainder of the kinna discusses about how we always wanted to know when Mashiach would come. And yet Hashem would never reveal it. He would not reveal it to anybody when Mashiach would come. And therefore, instead of saying, instead of studying why it was destroyed and working on getting it back, we are sometimes more concerned with when it will be rebuilt. But we shouldn't do that. We should spend more effort trying to figure out why it was destroyed and what we can do to get it rebuilt than figuring out when it will be rebuilt. Tovu Tardim Liedazman, Kilgalis Kates of Zuman. Yaakov's children worked on themselves to figure out when Mashiach will come. Yashu Shalulav Leda, they begged their father to tell them, Zman Kates of Pulais Masa Yizvada, when will it come? But instead, Yikavli Yay Mishua Valaynaida, Adki Vita Yuchash Vizvada. It will only be made known when he finally comes. And there are many times in history that people were convinced that Mashiach will come. And maybe it was a good time. Right after the Holocaust, the whole world knew that Mashiach was for sure coming. Nothing happened like this ever before. And Mashiach did not come. After the Six-Day War, there was a tremendous hero tshuva swept across the earthy soil and the rest of the world. And Mashiach did not come. Perhaps he could have come then if he would have seized the time more properly, but he didn't. But our job is to know that Mashiach will come. And we have to know what to do and how to rectify things so Mashiach will come. I vividly remember by 1991, by the Gulf War, 1990, and there was a deadline of January 15th. What happened was that Saddam Hussein from Iraq invaded Kuwait. And America said, the United States said, you better stop. And they said, if you don't stop, we're going to come and make you leave. And they did the most logical thing that the Arabs can do. They said, well, if you're going to attack us, we're going to attack Israel. And they made a deadline of January 15th. I remember at the time, as it came close and close to the date, many people went home, many people stayed, and as it got close to January 15th, the country, the government gave out gas masks for everybody. And then, January 15th was a Yom Tefillah. Everywhere, all the stores were closed. It was a massive gathering by the Kaisal, and all the yeshivas and shuls had a Yom Tefillah. I remember clearly the Yom Tefillah in the Mir Yeshiva. At that time, there was only one building, and it was packed, packed, packed. And we said Tefillahs, and we davened, we said Tehillim, and then, remember where Klaus was sitting Shiva right now, for the Mira Shiva for Ravaya Finkel, was just Nifter. Remember at the time, he got up and he was leading the Tfilas. And then when he finished saying Yavinu Malkeinu, he turned around and he opened up the Parifis. He opened up the Arnakaidish. And he started to say out loud, Hashem. And everyone responded, Hashem. Hashem. Kel. Kel. Rachum. Hanun. He started to say over the Yud Gilmiz of Hashem. And, and I looked around the base Medish and I see everybody dominating with so much Kavana. 
And for the first time concerning the war, I got frightened. I wasn't as frightened about the war as I was thinking that with all this tefillah, there is no way that Mashiach is not going to come very soon. And I was scared of Mashiach coming. Because I thought to myself, am I ready for Mashiach to come? Did I do what I was supposed to accomplish? Did I accomplish what I was supposed to accomplish? So I was actually frightened that Mashiach would actually come. In fact, the Ramam says there's no mitzvah to think of when Mashiach will come. The mitzvah is to await for Mashiach to come. Chavaz Chaim comments on this that his life is very similar to a postcard. I don't know if some of you remember what a postcard is. It's a piece of cardboard, light cardboard. With a picture on one side, you write on the other side, you put a stamp on it, to walk over to the mailbox and put it inside the mailbox. Then it takes a few days to get to where it's going. When they would start to write, you look at any, any uh, postcard, in the beginning, it's filled with, hi, how are you, what's doing? Just generic questions and big letters with a lot of space. And as you get to the bottom of the postcard, you see the writing gets smaller. And then the person starts to look for space to write because you ran out of space when it gets to the important part. He says that's unfortunately how people live their lives. In the beginning we have so much time, we have so much time, we have so much time, then all of a sudden we realize we don't have a lot of time. And we try to accomplish as much as we can. So while we hope that Mashiach should come very soon, we have to make sure to use our time wisely and to accomplish at the end of all this, the kina says a very interesting thing, very sad thing. The kina says, talks about the cruelty that Nebuchadnezzar treated Klai Yisrael. says, Yogo Nares Babel Kinnis Akvu. They were worn down when they were detained by the river of Babel. What happened there? Nebuchadnezzar was sailing down on a ship, down the river, and he sees the Yidin walking, the prisoners so he turns to his officer and says, what's going on over there? Who is that? He says, what do you mean? These are the Jewish slaves. They're walking chained one to another. He says, what? Those are the Jewish slaves? Why are they walking upright? Immediately, the officers gave orders. They took these barrels, filled them up with sand, and every Jewish slave never had to go and carry this heavy, heavy burden on his back. So he had to walk bent over like an animal. The kingdom continues, Shafu Shaivim Gayim Matkirim. The captors slept peacefully after they stabbed the Jewish bodies. Shehem Yazum Udatum Umeit Pras Kairim Daikrim. They treated them as Eilim Bamoi Kimoi Vikaram. They treated them as if they were cattle. What does it mean they treated us as if they were cattle? You have to wonder, a hundred years ago, with all the things that Klaiso went through, how did they think in their mind, what does it mean they were treated like cattle? And they thought it meant that because they were standing straight, they didn't want them to stand like people, put the things on them, the sand, the barrels of sand, and they should have to walk bent over, looking down like animals. Unfortunately, our generation... We have a clearer understanding of what does it mean. They treated them as if they were cattle. That changed forever on January 23rd, 1941. 
January 23rd of 1941 in Romania. Romania was a satellite of Nazi Germany, and they practically had a welcoming party when the Nazi party came in. And two groups formed when this happened. There's one group under General Antonescu. He was in control of the, of the country, and he wanted everything should be done in a legal and orderly fashion. There's another group, a bunch of Romanian murdering thieves. Both of these groups had the same goal. The goal was to kill and steal everything from the Jews. But the general, Antonescu, wanted to be done in a formal and legal way. He wanted to pass laws, you allowed to kill the Jews, pass laws, you allowed to take their money. The other group was not interested in that. What's the difference? Just kill them and take their money. And while this is going back and forth, they formed a group, the Legionnaires, led by a fellow named Haria Sima, and they wanted to do it the old-fashioned way, just to take them, torture them, murder, and steal from them. On January 20th, 1941, the Legionnaires, together with a bunch of peasants, the worker unions, students, they started a riot against the Jews. They lit all the shuls on fire, they took the Jews out, and they started to torture them. Different types of things, throwing them off rooftops, stabbing them. It's Tishabov, so we can say the rest of the story. Three days later, before General Antonescu was able to solidify his control, the legionnaires went and they took 15 Jews at random. Among them was a five-year-old girl and they brought them to the Kosherah Shlachtais in town. They lined up these Jews, they made them undress. The 15 legionnaires were standing, each of them took out a pistol and they shot each of these 15 Jews in their knees. Terribly painful, they fell down, screaming in pain. That wasn't enough. They had to treat them like animals. They picked up the Jews, they walked over to the hook cement for the animals, and they hung them on these hooks through their back. If that's not enough, they went, took a knife, they opened their stomach, and they took out their intestines while they were alive. And just to finish up, they took the stamp that was there and they stamped them on their shoulders, kosher. This is what they did to us. And this is why now we can further understand what does it mean, they treated us like cattle. And therefore we end this kinnok. Where is the promise, Hashem, that Hashem is going to go and deliver us. The next kin will be saying is kin of Tezayin. Zechor Remember what Titus did inside the Beis Hamidash. Sholaf Charbay Volafnei Volafnim. He unsheathes his sword and he answered inside to the Kodesh Kedoshim. Nachalusenu Bi'es Ketima Lechem upon him. He struck terror throughout the land making lechem upon him tomei, the gida parechus balashtei upon him, and he stabbed the two-sided lechem upon him. What's going on over here? This is in Kinnitazayin. We are now going from the Churban the Bayashvishan to the Churban Bayashani. 
And this kina, as we said before, the gagan chayiv, aydei chayiva, and just like the bayis rishon was destroyed by Tishavav, so is the bayis sheni. And this kina, also written by Rav Lajar he describes and he recounts the destruction of the bayis sheni by Vespasian and his son Titus. Vespasian was a Roman general, and he set a siege around Yerushalayim. Later on, he was informed while he was there by the siege, he was informed that the emperor died and the senate appointed him, elected him as king, and he returned back to Rome to take over the throne. And therefore he sent the son Titus to take over the siege of Yerushalayim. Zohar Shrasatzabrafrim, what happened was Titus came, he broke through the Besamigdash, and he came into the Besamigdash, and he banged on the Mizbeach, and he challenged Hashem. He said, Hashem, you're a king? I'm also a king. Let's battle each other. <clears throat> Let's battle each other. And he enters the Kadesh Kedash, and before he enters, he stabs the Parechus. The king calls it. The Gida Parechus Balash Teiponim has two faced curtain. Why is it two faced? Because when you embroider something on a curtain, so the side that you embroider looks beautiful. But the flip side, the other side, the side that you don't see, doesn't look nice. It has no meaningful scene on it. This was a Kadesh Kadash, and therefore it had to be beautiful and inside and out. It was an unbelievable feat that they managed to go and make a beautiful picture on one side and the same beautiful picture was on the other side as well. And when he stabbed it, blood came out of the Parechus. And Titus said, oh, I killed Hashem. That's what he said. Of course, we know the blood came for hundreds of years of sprinkling the blood on Yom Kippur, onto, by the Kengar, onto the Parechus. He burnt the base of Mikdash, and the Harbi destroyed it, and the Harbi is going up in flames. At that time, he took 97,000 even as prisoners and he killed 1.1 with one estimate of Gemara 1.1 million Yidin were killed then. You have to understand what was going on to kill 1.1 million Yidin. It's not like today where people use machine guns or atomic weapons. They have to go and take each sword and stick it into somebody, pull it out and go to the next one. The streets were flowing with blood, there were bodies everywhere, and they had to, even when they were chasing other Jews, they had to run over these bodies. And many, many Jews tried to run away, and even years after the Hurban, they would still, there were Jews still hiding in different places, and the Romans would search for them, and catch them alive, to bring them back to Rome, and to use them for entertainment purposes. When Titus finished destroying the base of Migdash, he started to go back home to Rome. On the way back to Rome, he was on a ship, and it was a large storm. And the ship was shaking around, and it looked like the ship wouldn't make it. Titus gets on deck of the ship, and he looks up and he says, Hashem, looks like you're very powerful on water. That's how you got rid of Pare, that's how you got rid of Sisra, and that's how you got rid of the Darhamabal. With water, very nice. Your power is only in water. If you're really such a strong king, why don't you fight me on land? As soon as Tita said that, the storm stopped. And the beautiful weather all the way back. But when he landed, when they got off the boat, all of a sudden a little gnat 
went into his nose and went up and took up residence in his head. And he gave him no peace and no rest. A constant, constant bother by this gnat inside his head. And after a while, one day he's walking down the street in his entourage and there was a Jewish metalsmith, blacksmith, banging away on his metal. And the gnat was startled. So it stopped doing whatever it was doing inside Titus' head. As soon as Titus realized that, he, for the first time in a while, he experienced some peace. He told his Jew to walk around with him, to constantly bang and bang and bang, and this way he would have peace from the net. However, the net eventually got used to him and once again started to torment Titus. Eventually, Titus died from this, and when he died, in pain, they opened up his head to see what was bothering him so much, and they found a net that weighed over an ounce. An ounce or a net in someone's head to weigh an ounce is very, very painful. Yet before he died, he took one last swipe, and he told his officers to cremate his body, to burn his body, pulverize it in small ashes, and to spread it out over the seas. This way, he said, if Hashem wants to judge me, he won't know where to find me. I'll be all over the place. Umar tells us that his nephew, we come to know his uncleus, who was Titus' nephew. His, uncle, his, his nephew, his sister's son, uncleus, was thinking about becoming a Jew. thinking about becoming a Ger. And somehow, he connected with his uncle's spirit in a dream, Titus. And he said, Uncle, who's important in the next world? In other words, is it worth it for me to convert to a Jew? Who's better off in the next world? So Titus answered him, the Jews are on top. But I don't suggest you convert, because it's too difficult to keep all their laws. So Uncle said, Titus, my uncle, tell me, what was your punishment for what you did? And Titus answered, not what was my punishment, but what is my punishment. Every day, my ashes are gathered, and I am reconstituted, I am judged again, and then I am burned again, and once again my ashes are spread out over the seas. And this happens every single day, and every single day I feel this pain of my body being burned. And that is the end of, of Titus. The Kinnis continues, Avesenu Zara Kechnisu Bachurav Achlaish. How could it be that when Titus entered the base of Migdash, he was able to destroy it, nothing happened to him for such a long time, and Sadiqim, like not even a view, brought in a little fire to the base of Migdash, and they were killed instantly. Titus lights the whole place on fire, nothing happens to him for a while. And of course, as the Kinnis explained earlier, the Nadav and Aviyah went inside the Beis Hamikdash. The Shkina was there. It had the Kedusha of the Beis Hamikdash. However, when Titus went in, the Shkina already left, and therefore all they were destroying, all Titus was destroying, the stones. We look on the Kitin in the Kinnis as it continues. Al Pesach Harabayas Heichel Lavoi, at the entrance of the Harabayas, when Titus became closer. He went and he had four generals 
and each of these generals were given one quarter of the city to destroy. He had a general named Panger. Al-Tzad Maravi was Zecher Hishrit boy. It's Every general had one part to do. He had a general named Panger who was supposed to destroy the western part of the city, which he did. But the wall of the western wall of the Harabais you cannot destroy. As you know, Chazal tell us that the Shina never left the western wall, the Kaisal HaMaravi. And his general Panger couldn't destroy it. It's South Africa slain of He wasn't able to was not able to destroy it. And therefore, when he comes and the general Vespasian sees what's going on, he says, Why don't you listen to me? He says, What do you mean? If I would have destroyed this wall over here, people would not know what the base of English was. People would say that of course he destroyed the base of English. What was it? A little a little hut, a little house somewhere, a building, that's you destroy, big deal. But if we leave this wall, this wall is so, so high, so magnificent, later on people will see what it was, and therefore people forever will always see how great you were. So he told me, you know, that's a very good uh, cheshman, but you didn't listen to me. So tell you what we'll do. You're going to go on top of the wall. You climb on top of the wall, and you're going to jump off. If you live, you live. If you don't live, it means you don't deserve to live. Of course, the general had no choice. He goes on the wall, he jumps down, and that was the end of him. And Hashem tells us, the reason why that happened is because you didn't mean the glory of the king, you meant to defeat Klai And therefore, you did not go and survive the jump. The Kinnis continues that in order to celebrate the victory, Vespasian went... And he mounted, he minted a coin with a picture on one side of himself, Vespasian, with a victory wreath on his head. And the other side was a picture of a Roman soldier with a spear and a, a Jew sitting over there under a palm tree. And it says on it, Judea capta. The Jew is a captive. And this is how he minted the coin in order to commemorate and to celebrate his victory. Judea capta. That's what it said on one side of the coin, Judea capta, and the other side was a picture of his facing with the wreath that goes on top of his head. His son Titus also wanted to commemorate, and he created a large ark to commemorate it. And this is known as the Arch of Titus. In French, the Arc de Triomphe, the Triumphic Arch. And on there, there are scenes of them taking away the Kalim of the Beis together with Jewish prisoners. It's a well-known story. The Panovich Yeshiva of Kahanamin was used to travel the world collecting for the Panovich Yeshiva. And when he was in Italy collecting, he asked the taxi driver, do you know where the Arch of Titus is? He says, of course. He goes, please take me there. He says, we're on the way to the airport. Quick, a quick stop, let's go to the Arch of Titus. They arrive there. The Panovich Yeshiva tells the taxi driver, one second, please, he gets out, he goes over to the arch and he starts to shake his fist and says, Titus, Titus where are you? you thought you were so great you thought you would be remembered forever where are you now? he says, I am a Rosh Hashiva in Eretz Yisrael I am going back to Meshiva with many, many Bakram we are still around where are you? 
Interesting, if you look at it, a little while ago someone took a can of spray paint and spray painted on there, Am Yisrael Chai, right on the Arch of Titus. In Eretz Yisrael, there's something called the Beit HaNasi. The Beit HaNasi is the president's residence. That's where the president lives. And there's a small entranceway that leads into a a larger, like a a sort of a lobby. On the right side, there is a small Arn Kodesh. Very fancy, but small Arn Kodesh. Inside the Arn Kodesh is a small Sefer Torah. You have to wonder, the President of Israel, unfortunately is not always a religious person, why would there be an official Sefer Torah in the official residence of the President of Israel? And there's a story to the Sefer Torah. What happened was, Tsar Nikolai I, who was a terrible Russia, person who started the Cantonists, and he was also someone who was a, people didn't like him, and eventually he wanted to advance Russia, and he wanted to make a network of roads around Russia. And once he did that, he went around the country visiting all the different cities. And when he was coming to the cities, of course, they had to go and, and uh, greet him properly. And in one city, the governor came over to the Jews and said, the czar is coming. Of course, you're going to you know, cobble upon him properly. What are you going to do? And the Jews got together and they had to make a whole beautiful reception for him. One of the things they did by this reception when he came, the czar came into the shul, they decorated the shul beautifully, and he was greeted by all the Feshuva here coming with the Sefer Torah. When he came into Shul, they made a loud brach and everyone answered, Amen. And then the Rav greeted him and he presented the Tsar with a Sefer Torah as a gift. They had no choice. They presented him with a gift. The Tsar was very pleased and he continued on his way. Of course, he had no use for the Sefer Torah. So he just put it with his other valuables. As time went on, the Tsar was overthrown by the Bolsheviks, and the Bolsheviks, the new government, they needed money. So they went, they took the Sefer Torah, and they sold it to a Jew. A Jew paid a lot of money, and he had this Sefer Torah. Somehow, the Sefer Torah survived World War II, and it ended up in Eretz Yisrael, and it was donated to the Beit HaNasi, and it sits in his house right now. Years ago, when the Russian ambassador to Israel came to Israel so you come to Israel you present your credentials to the president of Israel and the president invited him to this house and he speaked to him and he pointed to the Sefer Torah and he told him where the Sefer Torah comes from and he says now it's in its rightful place it's in Eretz Yisrael after all the Jews went through in your country with the Tsar and the Bolsheviks now the Sefer Torah is finally in Eretz Yisrael I'll just add well, Sevater is very close to home. How much better would that Sevater feel if that Sevater was actually in a shul or yeshiva where they would lean from it on the Monday and a Thursday or even on Shabbos. The kinna ends with with the the kinna ends with the the telling us that we hope they place the hope in Hashem who's going to eventually bring them back to to uh, Eretz Yisrael. The next kin we'll be seeing is Kinnah Yud Zion.
can happen that women ate the fruit of their wombs into the shalna nashim achmoni etziladim and do them tefachim tefachim. If ladies can go and eat their precious children, children that they would measure every year how much they grew, and they would give that amount to tzedakah to the base amigdash. And now things were so bad that they were starving; they would actually eat their own children. This kina, perhaps one of the most frightening and sad of the kinas that we say, it describes the terrible and torturous things that we had to bear by the Khurban. And yet, the author of this kinah, again, Rav Lazar he concludes this kinah with a very unusual and a very stinging rebuke. That we don't see with other kinahs. He gives us an all the way down a very stinging rebuke, which we'll see shortly. The makeup of the kinah is very interesting. Each kinah starts with the word im, which is aleph mem, and the next word is a, starts with a tuf, which spells the word emes. Im techalna, into Vashelna, into Gaizna, into Dadbek, into Haimena. Each one starts with Im, and then the next word with a Saf, which tells us that everything we're saying here is Amos. We agree that it's true, and that it's just that it happened. Into Gaizna, past Raisham, Sikshanel, Susan Parchim, if it can happen that the hair of the was taken and tied to horses, and the horses would run with that. Alayli, woe is to me. is to me. If two mothers can meet each other and each one say, you know, do you have any? Do you already cook your child? I need to cook my uh, my child. I ate already. I didn't eat. Woe is to me to hear such to hear such things. And it goes on the kinna. If it can happen that father's flesh was waiting in a ditch for a child to eat, Alayli, woe is to me. As you know what was going on, there, was, uh, there were people and they were hiding and they had no food to eat. And there's a group of people every few days that would need to get some more food hiding in a cave. And it was always someone's turn to go out and find food. One day it was one person's turn and he went out to go look for food. He's looking, he's looking, searching, he can't find anything. Finally, he's ready to go back, and he sees, he finds a body. He gets so excited, as he comes closer, he realizes it's his father. He couldn't do it. So he quickly drove to the grave, placed his father inside, covered it, came back, he said, I'm sorry, I couldn't find anything. So what do you mean, it's your turn, we're going to starve to death, you have to find, because I couldn't find. One of the people got so frustrated, he said, fine, I'm going to go take the chance of getting caught and I'm going to go out he goes out and he's looking around he also can't find anything on the way back he's walking and he trips and he looks down and he sees a shallow grave it looks like and he digs it up takes the body and he brings it back he says look they found something they took the flesh and they ate it when they finished eating the person turns to him and says tell me how did you find anything I looked all over the place he describes to him what happened because I was walking, I tripped, I fell. And the person realized he just ate the flesh of his father. If it can happen, the father's flesh was waiting for the children's, for the children to eat in a cave. That's how bad the situation was. In fact, 
the beginning of the siege, the Romans wanted torture so much, they would take Jewish ladies who had children and had to nurse them, and they would make these Jewish ladies nurse Roman kids, Galatia kids, constantly until there's nothing left for them to feed their own children. They would have to watch their own children starve to death as they would have to nurse the Roman, the Roman kids. And to give us a little further, Medrashen Eicher brings down how these mothers would go and, and search for food once wealthy people looking, searching for food, walking with their babies. And eventually they found no food. These mothers would collapse. And they would die. These little babies who were crawling, wanted food, they would go over to their mother, to their dead mother, and try to nurse from them. But of course, there was no milk and those babies would die as well. And to this we say, MS, it's true, and we deserved it. To think how, how bad things must have been, that they can eat their own children. During the Holocaust, Yoshiv of Netzach Yisrael, of Gustman, survived the war. How he survived it itself is an interesting story. But during the war, he was there with his wife and two children, his son and his daughter. And the Nazi, Yamakshon, came over, grabbed his young son from his hand, threw him on the, on the floor, and stamped on his head with his boot till he killed him, for no reason. And then the Nazi walked off. Guzman took his child, he was at least happy that he can bury him, he took the shoes from his child and he went and he sold them in order to buy food. That's how hungry they were. He came home and he gave the food to his wife and to his daughter. And his wife saw that he wasn't eating. She says, Yisrael, why aren't you eating? He says, this food came from the money of the shoes of my son. He said, I cannot eat this food. I just can't do it. And yet to think of how bad it must have been by the Khurban, if not only would they sell something of their dead child to eat that food, they actually kill the children to eat them, the kina says. And it says, Emes. And the kina ends with a very, very stinging rebuke from the Navi, from Velazaklir. Uh, Marim but the the Ruach Kaidah screams back at them. He says, He says, What happened to them? That they tell everybody all the misfortunes. They said, But what they did wrong, what they did wrong, that they don't tell anybody. Somehow everyone finds out all the bad things that happened to them. But the bad things that they did, that nobody knows. They don't publicize that. If it happens that mothers ate their own children, it must be It must be that they killed the Navi of Hashem in the base of Migdash. And that they didn't let hear. They didn't let anybody know. They're referring to the killing the murder of Zechariah Navi, which we'll discuss in, uh, in a later kino. And that's what he was saying. Interesting, these words over here, the first time, every time it's in with a tough, in with a tough, except for this last line. And here it's Vim Yehareg, it doesn't say Aleph Mem Sof, it's not Emes, because we did not do the right thing. We are not 
going and recognizing that if we did something wrong, it's because that we did, if something wrong happens to us, bad happens to us because we did something wrong. This doesn't only apply to major things. This applies to small things too. A fellow was telling me that when he was old, when he still is old, he has a burping problem. He burps a lot. And he one time said he knows why it's happening because he went to doctors and there's nothing they can do about it. He says he knows why it's happening. It's Mida Kenegin Mida. Because he remembers that when he was in yeshiva, he had a Rebbe who burped a lot. And it bothered him as a student. And he said, I don't understand, why can't you do something about it? And he always made fun of him to his friends, the Rebbe who burped. He says, now he's old, Mida Kenegin Mida, he gets that burp. So we have to understand, when bad things happen to us, we have to say, MS, we understand why it happened, and we shouldn't get criticized for only saying the bad things that happened to us, but not realizing the bad things that we did that caused it to happen. Next kin will be saying is kin yates. Hashem at Stoko, Tiu Hashem, a righteous. The wonder signs have been displayed from then until now. A lot of bites upon him, and we are ashamed. And in this kina, 12 times we say, To you is righteousness. And then unfortunately we say after that, upon him, and we are ashamed of what we did. Hashem did so much for us. Hashem does so much for us, and we don't appreciate it. At times, not only do we not appreciate what Hashem does for us, but we take the very good that Hashem does for us, and we use that good against Hashem. As we say in the Kinnah, the Lanu is upon him, Hashem Hashem to use righteousness, Hashem, you came to redeem us from Mitzrayim. The Lanu is upon him, we are shamefaced, and yet we rebelled by the by the by the Yamsuf by saying that well just like we got out on this side the Gaim the Mitzrayim got out on the other side or Hashem you gave us a wafers fried in honey which was a taste of the mon the lot of vices upon him. And we are shamefaced because because unbelievable as it sounds, when we made the eagle, we offered the eagle mon. So we got mon from Kodesh Baruch who was sustaining us in the desert, and we took that mon and we gave it to the eagle azov. It kind of continues again another time. Hashem to his righteous bekima shilai v'noi v'givain u'beis elamim. You gave us the Mishkan, you gave us the base Hamigdash. The Lord of Baishas upon him, we are shamefaced. The Rasha Shinim Sabanu, Shacharvu Vamanu, Nechlamin. Because we caused them to be destroyed. With this kinna, we are admitting to Hashem's justice. We are saying that Hashem gave us so much, and we did not appreciate it. And as we said, we used it against Hashem Himself. And this is why we also have to be very careful to Makritaiva. Because if a person is a coffee type, eventually, the Yalkut Shmoni points out, they'll end up being a coffee type, like Kaddish Baruch Hu, and they'll end up chas denying the existence of a Kaddish Baruch Hu. 
In fact, the Gemara uses this as a the Gemara of Eidazar uses as a quintessential example of being kafir type is how they gave mon to the eagle. We learned talking from Meisha how far you have to go for curse. To tell you, if Meisha Vena was didn't want to hit the Nile to bring the Makkas, he didn't want to hit the ground because he had to have a curse to tell you. We know the luck is you're not supposed to throw a stone into a well that you drank from. It's hard to understand. The well doesn't know who you are. The well is not is an inanimate object. When we leave our car, we don't say thank you to our car for taking us. Why is it that Meisha couldn't uh, do this? And the answer, of course, is that when Moshe had a curse type to the Nile, it wasn't so the Nile shouldn't feel bad. It's to implant in us, to concretize to us that we have to have a curse type. We have to be thankful. And if we're going to be thankful to anyone that gives us something, we'll also be thankful and recognize so much that a curse Baruch gives us so much. And therefore we have to be thankful for, for to the water, to the Nile, to the ground, to whatever is Mahanas, to whatever helps us out, that gives us something, provides us with something. There was a fellow once visiting his family, his children, grandchildren, in the Catskills in a bungalow colony. And the grandfather was having a wonderful time sitting in the bungalow, and all of a sudden he notices his two grandchildren running around. So they're running around, he's enjoying watching them until he realizes they each have a broom in their hand, and there's a rat running around the bungalow. So he tells them, stop, stop. So the two boys stop. What's wrong? Stop running. Stop chasing it. Zadie, it's a rat. We got to chase the rat. We got to kill it. We got to get out of here. And the grandfather says, no, no, please, don't chase it. He said, come on, Zadie, it's a rat. Since when do you like rats? And they keep on running around. Finally, the grandfather says, look, you have to stop. If you don't stop, I'm going home. I can't stay here if you're going to chase the rat. So these two boys look at the grandfather and say, Zadie, what's going on? He says, come here. Put down your brooms, take a seat. They each sit down on the couch next to him. He says, let me tell you something. You don't know my whole story of how I survived the war. And when you're older, I'll tell it to you, Mir Tashem. I just want to tell you one part of it. I was in Auschwitz. I was in Auschwitz for about a year and a half. It came some time before the winter of 1943. The conditions were terrible. The point I want to tell you is that in our barracks, the way we slept, there were four shells. And we would sleep there on these shells. And soon the barracks got so crowded, we couldn't anymore sleep lying down. We had to sleep sideways. Which ended up being somewhat of a blessing in disguise because in the winter, there were times we got so cold and the barrack had just one little fire, one little heater. Some barracks didn't have any. Our barrack had just one little fire. And we would freeze at night, but because we were sandwiched together with the next person, we shared body warmth, and that's how we survived. Of course, at the end of these long shells, there were people. They didn't have anyone next to them. And very often, on a really cold night, they would freeze to death. So there was a girl every night. There was a lottery every night. Who gets to sleep there? And the person that would sleep there, if it was a cold night, a very cold night, very often they would not wake up the next morning. They'd be frozen. They would freeze to death. Well, came my turn. 
to sleep over there in the barracks on the all the way at the end of the barrack. I said goodbye to my friends. I said Vidai. I said Shema. I went to sleep. The next morning, I woke up. Five o'clock in the morning, the dogs are barking, everyone's screaming, and I couldn't believe I woke up. Before I moved, I looked down, and while on one side of me there was a person who we were sharing body heat, on the other side there was a row of rats who were also freezing cold. Rats. The row of rats were also feeling cold, freezing cold. And they also needed warmth. So they came up in the middle of the night and they pressed against me so they can get warmth from my body. But while my body was getting warmth from, while they were getting warmth from my body, I was getting warmth from their body too. And therefore, while I'm sitting here now, even though it's many years later, I can't watch you chase around a rat. Even though this rat has no idea who those other rats were, they're probably not even related, and it's a rat. But I have to have a karstay, because that's the midah, that we as Yidin have to have to emulate, to emulate Hashem. And if we do that, then not only will we still get to say, L'cha Hashem Atzdaka, but we won't anymore have to say, L'lona Baishas Hapanim. The next kin we'll be saying is kin of Chavalef, Cedars of Lebanon, the Giants of Tyra, Bali Saracen, Mishnah of the Gemara, the shield carriers of the Mishnah of the Gemara, Gibari Karach, Amalev at Tahara, is a Gibari Karach who exert themselves in Tahara, Talam Nishpach, Menashek Vura, the blood was spilled, and the greatness was removed from us. Who are we talking about? Hinam Kedeshe, Ruge Malchus Asara. These are the Sayyidim Malchus, over these I cry, Ve'eni Nigra, and my eye overflows. This kina, while not meant to be a, a history lesson, this kina is perhaps one of the most well known kinois, and that is a Sayyidim Malchus. We know it's not a history lesson because the Kina presents it as happening all in one shot, and we know it didn't. For example, Rishmol Kain Gadol and Shimon Ben Gamliel were murdered by the Churban by Hashani a little before, and the other eight were murdered only many years later, some of them more than 50 years later after the Barkaychba revolt. The Lord tells us in Rosh Hashanah, Sheshkula Misasa Shal Tadikim Kesrevus Beis Hashem. The Misa Tzedikim, the death of Tzedikim, is a tragedy equal to the destroying of the Beis HaMikdash. Why? Because we know Tzadik, Tzadik dies, he dies on behalf of Kal Yisrael. And therefore, the death, we look at the death of a Tzadik worse than the destroying of the Beis HaMikdash. And therefore, we lane this kinna, even though it's not directly related to the Churban Bayes Rishon or the Churban Bayes Sheni, still the death of these ten Sadiqim, the Sarah and Ruge Malchus, perhaps is even worse, as the Gemara tells us, it's like the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash. What happened was, the king at the time came over to the Rabbanim and said, I have a question to ask you. What's the halacha 
if somebody kidnaps somebody and he sells him, what's the halacha? So Abraham said, well, halacha is very clear. You kidnap somebody and you sell them, you chayv misa. So the king said, that's interesting. I've been learning the Torah. And I read that the brothers, the ten shvatim, kidnapped Yasef, and then they sold him. Is that true? I said, yeah, it's true. So, well, I've been reading the rest of the Torah, and I don't find anywhere that the brothers got punished. And you just said that if you kidnap somebody and you uh, sell them, you're Chayv Misa. I don't see it happening anywhere. I, as the king, it's my responsibility to make sure there's justice. And therefore, I'm sure if Yasef was around, he would want me to do justice for them. And therefore, I'm going to go and kill ten of you to make a for the Shvatim Musul Yasef. Kinnit tells us Yishmol Kaingadol went up to Shemayim, and Shemayim he was told that this is Xera and he should and he should accept it. What lesson are we supposed to learn from this? That we recite this on on Tishabab. So the truth is, Cheska Levenstein says that we have two things left over from the Khurban of the Beis Nidash. One is the Kaisal Maharabi. As we said before, the Kaisal we have, and the Shekhinah is still there. And the Yash have pointed out many times that that's the best place a person can dive into more than anywhere else in Eretz Yisrael. The Shekhinah is there. It doesn't understand why I have to go anywhere else. You can go to the Kaisal to daven. And Cheskel Levenstein said, we have the Kaisal left over from the Khurban, and the other thing that we have left over is Sinas Chinam. The same Sinas Chinam that was here then is here now. And therefore, when it comes down to it, Yasef, <coughs> excuse me, Yasef is sold by the brothers because of Sinas Chinam. And the message of this Kina is that we will not get the base of Mikdash as long as we have Sinas Chinam. As Gomorrah teaches us, any generation that the base of is not rebuilt, it's as if that generation destroyed the Beis Hamikdash. It means that if the Beis Hamikdash was standing in our generation and it's not rebuilt in our generation, then it's as if the Beis Hamikdash itself, if it was standing, would be destroyed. Because what's missing is we have to change this, rectify this sinas chinam, and we have to do it with the habas chinam. And that's why we lay in this kinam the soyim rugi malchus to go through the kinam to see what happened. When they decide they're going to get killed, so they drew lots between Shimon Gamliel and Yishmael Kaingado. Each one wanted to go first, so as not to have to suffer watching the other one. The girl fell out on to Shimon, Shimon Gamliel, and therefore he was the one who went first, as we say in the, in the Kina, Kinful girl, a rabbi Shimon, Pasha Tzavara, he stuck out his neck, Uvacha, and he cried, Kinigzerog Zerah, Zerah, was given and he was killed after him as the kinnah tells us Mizera Arain Shal Bavakasha Livkais Aben Hagvira this is Yishmol Kaingadol who comes from Arain and he was very handsome he was so handsome that the daughter of the governor begged her father not to kill him 
please, keep Rabbi Shmuel Kangado, keep him for my purposes. He's so handsome, I'd like to keep him. So the governor said, fine, not a problem. And he went, and he pulled off the skin of Rabbi Gamil's face. He had it removed, he had it mounted, stretched, and he gave it to his daughter. You can imagine the pain of pulling off the skin of someone's face. And Rabbi Shmuel Kangado was quiet until they came to the Makkum of the Tefillin, and when they came to the Makkum of the Tefillin, he screamed out. Next, Me'achor Baviyu as Rabbi Akiva. They came to kill Rabbi Akiva. How did they kill Rabbi Akiva? The Sarkos Pesari, they combed his flesh, the mastery with a comb shall barzel of iron, the Ishtabra, in order to break him. Yatsin Ishmasib Echad, and a he, he's Neshama left him when he was saying Shema Yisrael Hashem Elkein Hashem Echad and Baskel came out and said Ashrecher Bekiva Hufach Tahar B'chol Minei Tahara and you're completely Tahar again as a Bekiva was arrested for the terrible crime of teaching Torah we know the famous Mashli said with the fish in the water even though they're trying to be caught they don't want to leave the water because Outside the water, they're for sure dead. Inside the river, they have a chance. And Rakita said the same thing. We have to teach terror, even though we may get caught. And finally, he was caught. He was tortured. And finally, Turnus Rufus ordered that his skin be removed. And when the, the skin was being pulled off, when, when he was being um, combed, his Talmudim asked him, Rabbi, until here also? Rakita said the famous answer. My whole life, I was wondering, I was waiting, how I could be in this mitzvah to serve Hashem, and now that it finally came, I've been preparing this for this my whole life, and now that it finally came, shouldn't I be the simcha? How important it is, Rav David Pavarsky, the father of uh, the president of Shiva Panovich, Rav Pavarsky, he was saying over that when he was running away with the Nazis, he was with a group of people, and they were in the forest, and the Nazis were coming, and there was an outhouse. And they all ran into the outhouse to hide. It's filthy, disease-ridden, and the Nazis didn't want to go into there. They all ran there to hide, except for Abdullah Bavarsky. He ran past the outhouse to hide among some trees. The Nazis came, they didn't want to go in, and they actually they left. And they asked Abdullah, why didn't you hide in the outhouse with us? Why did you hide in the open by the trees? He says, listen, it wasn't such a good hiding place. There's a 50-50 chance that we would get caught in the outhouse anyways. But if we would get caught in the outhouse, and they would shoot us, I would want to die like a yid. I would want to scream out, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elkeinu Hashem Echad. But I wouldn't be able to, because we're in a filthy place. So it was worth it for me. I'd rather take the chance and hide by the trees. In case I get caught, at least I can die like a yid. I can scream out, Shema Yisrael. That is how Rabbi Kiva died. The fourth one was Yehudim ben Baba. If you Shivan Leva Azhara, the Romans decreed that it's prohibited to give anyone smicha. Yehudim ben Baba did not want to break the chain of smicha. Over 1,500 years Messiah they had at the time of giving smicha, and therefore he gave smicha to five Talmidim. He gave smicha to Rav Meir, to Yeshua Bar Eloi. Rabbi Huda Bar Yilai, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai, Rabbi Yaisi Ben Chalafta, and to Velazar Ben Shemua. The Romans found out about this, and they saw and they started chasing them. 
And if Yehuda ben Bava told us to meet him, you run, and I'm going to hold them back. It seems to be those uh, two rocks, two big mountains, and a small passageway. He stood there, and he lodged himself there, and the Romans couldn't get him out. And they came with, with uh, bows and arrows, and they started shooting at him and shooting at him, until finally they pierced him with 300 spears, and he died. The fifth one, the Kinnis tells us, of Kinnida ben Trajan, he would go and he would assemble crowds to teach Torah in public. He said, no, you have to teach Torah, you have to do it in public. The Romans took him, he would always learn with the Sefer Torah. They surrounded him with the Sefer Torah and they lit the Sefer Torah on fire. But in order for him not to die so quickly, they want to be a more painful death, they put in cotton, wool. They put in wool, wet wool, and this way it would slow down the fire and he would be in more pain. And Hanina said those famous words that the Sefer Torah may be burning, the parchment is burning, but the ice ice are going up to Shemayim. The executioner saw what was going on, how, how Hanina ben Trajan was accepting this, and he told him, he says, look, if I help you out, do you promise me a portion I love about? And Khanid ibn Trajan said yes. And whereupon the executioner took out the wool and he added more wood to the fire and he made a big fire. And he himself jumped into the fire and Abbasil came out and said, Khanina and the executioner are now entering Ilam Habo. The sixth one the sixth one to die to get killed was Yesheva Hasaifer. He was murdered while he was, sound, while he was uh, saying Shema. And they took him. They did not permit anyone to bury him. They let the dogs go after him. And they dragged his wild body. The, the wild dogs dragged his body all around the city, chomping at it, dragging it until his body broke apart. The seventh one to be killed, to be murdered, was Rav Chutzpis. Rav Chutzpis was a maturgaman. Someone who explained the drashas of Adar Abanim. He explained it very clearly. He was one day shy of his 130th birthday. He asked him to let him stay alive one more day. Kill me tomorrow, because I want to say Krishna for one more day. Instead, they ripped out his tongue and said, this tongue that explains the Torah deserves to be ripped out. They ripped out his tongue, and they threw it in the garbage, and pigs were eating from it. Next comes of Elizabeth and Shemua. He was killed at age 105. And the ninth one, which the Kinnah doesn't bring down, was Kanino ben Chachinoi and Yehuda ben Dima. Yet, the Kinnah concludes with more of an uplifting message, and it says, Vashem, We won't suffer anymore. The days of your mourning have come to an end. We think about this Imagine the people alive at the time watch these Tamir Chacham getting killed. They know they don't deserve it. And it lends to the age-old question of why do good things happen to bad people. One of the first who were killed were Yishmael Kangadol, and when they were pulling off his skin and he came to his hole and he screams out, he says, the Malachim, the Medrash tells the Malachim, start to say, Tekash Baruch such a big time of Chachem, such a big tzaddik, this is his reward. 
And Hashem tells the Malachim, be quiet. Because if not, I'm going to revert the world to Tayyavavayu, to emptiness and to nothingness. So everybody asks, if the Kosh Baruch what the answer is that? If the Kosh Baruch didn't want to answer them, he should have said, I'm not answering you. If you wanted to answer them, you should have answered them. What kind of answer is this? If you ask me again, I'm going to revert the world to Tayyavavayu. The different truths of Shlomo Kluger says as follows that there once was a tailor he was an excellent tailor he was so good that the governor appointed him to be his personal tailor Moshka and he enjoyed him when he made his clothing for him he liked his clothing very much of course the people around the governor were not so happy that this Jew was getting such a high position and getting paid so much they were always looking for ways to knock him down one day the governor calls Amashka and says, You know, Amashka, in two months from now, there's going to be a party. I am hosting the party. And governors and officials from all over are going to be coming to the party. It's going to be a very fancy party. I, of course, have to be the best dressed man there. Amashka, you have two months. I want you to make me your most exquisite and beautiful creation. Money makes nothing, means nothing. Whatever it costs, no problem. Masha got to work, put everything else aside, and he worked diligently for two months, and he came with a beautiful, beautiful suit. Comes to the king, the king tries it on, he loves it, he's ecstatic, he's so happy. Masha, go into my treasure house, and you can take whatever you want. Fills up his stuff with gold, and Masha is a very happy man as well. Everyone's happy except for the advisors. How could it be? This Jew is getting such honor. So they come to the king and said, Your honor, to the governor, and they said, You know, Moshka really made you a nice suit, but he's laughing at you. So why is he laughing at me? He says, Because he robbed you. He robbed me. No, no, no. All the money he took, I let him take it. I'm happy. He said, No, no, no. He robbed you because of all the material he took to make the suit, the gold thread, and the rubies that he put in, and the diamonds. He didn't use it for the suit. Most of it he put away. He put some of it in the suit. He's laughing at you. Besides, you paid him. He stole you from you. The king wasn't sure. The governor wasn't sure if this is true or not. So he calls Amash. He says, Amash, look, this is what they're accusing you of. So Amash says, what? I didn't steal anything. You know me. I wouldn't touch a thing. So the governor says, look, Amash, you're going to have to prove it. How am I supposed to prove it? Amash, if you don't prove it, you're going to be in big trouble. Skamash says, okay, I have an idea. Bring the suit. They bring the suit, they lay it on the table. Mashka takes out his scissor and he walks over to the suit. It looks like he's about to cut it. Mm-hmm. And the governor says, what are you doing? He says, well, you want me to prove to you that I used all the material. Yeah, but why are you cutting the suit? He says, look, I'm going to take apart the suit, thread by thread. I'm going to line it all up. And you're going to see. You're going to count your diamonds. You're going to count your gold thread. And you'll see it's all here. So the governor says, you can't do that. The party is this week. I won't have a suit. Mashka says, look, what do you want me to do? That's the only way I can prove to you that I used everything. Shlomo Kluger said, that's the same thing that Kosh Baruch was telling the Malachim. You want to understand what's going on with Rabbi Shmuel? In order for you to understand what's going on with Rabbi Shmuel, I would have to turn the world all the way back to Tayyip all the way back to the beginning. And only then would you understand. It's an interesting thing. A person, a rabbi, once asked his congregant who was a, 
a very old person, elderly person, says, tell me, what schools do you have for such a Yuchas Yonim? He says, I'll tell you, all my friends, whenever something happened, they would always say, Hashem, why? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? So Hashem used to bring them up to tell them. I never asked. Hashem, you do what you have to do. I never asked. And we see from this kinah, is that when something happens, we know that everything happens for a reason. And therefore, if we want to make sure that these things, chas v'shom, don't continue to happen, these are sorry ruge malchus, which is similar to the destruction of the base Migdash, we have to make sure to eradicate our sinas kinah and replace it only with the havas kinah. The next kinah will be saying is kinah chavav, Chavav also written by Lazar Kalir and describes how frustrated Yirmiyah Novi was because for 40 years he was prophesizing and telling Klaisol the Furban's going to come if they don't change their ways. And Klaisol didn't do tshuva. Not only did Klaisol not do tshuva, Klaisol made fun of him and they didn't listen difficult to understand how for 40 years he warned them that it will be destroyed nobody listened eventually after 22 years of this of him telling them that the Beis will be destroyed if they don't do tshuva Hashem told them to write down what will be write down about the Churban but write down write it down now and that's what we have Prokham Aleph, Beis and Gimel of Megillah Secha was actually written before the Churban. It was written years before the Churban. 18 years before the Churban was written down. And Yemi at that time was so despised and he did not want to stop talking about this that the king at the time, Yayakum, threw him in jail. Threw the Navi, Yemiah, in jail. However, that did not prevent Yemiah from carrying out his Nevius. He had a very close Talmud named Baruch ben Naria. And he wrote down the Nevuah to Baruch ben Neriah and told him to go and bring it bring it to the king. And Baruch ben Neriah went and he did a shlichus and he brought it to the king. And the Gemara Maikat tells us how the conversation went. He comes to the king and it was in the middle of Kislev, eighth day of Kislev, and he was in his winter palace. And there was a large fire warming the palace. <clears throat> And he comes and he says the Nevuah, how Yerushalayim sits in solitude by itself. And Yaakov says, who cares? As long as I'm the king, it doesn't matter. Then he said the next Pasuk, She cries at night, Yerushalayim is crying at night. And again the king says, who cares? As long as I'm king, it doesn't matter. He said the next Pasuk, Yud is going to go into, into Golas and because of the suffering, who cares? I'm still king. Then he says, the roads of Tzion are in mourning. And again he says, who cares? As long as I'm king, it's fine. And finally he says, her adversaries, her enemies have become its kings, its leaders. And then he said, never, I will be king. And Yayakum was so upset, he took a knife and he cut out this Nevoah, and he cut out Hashem's name of each one, and then together with Hashem's name, he threw it into the fire, and it all 
burned down. This eventually became Parag Gimel in Eicha, which is the longest parak, the longest parak in Eicha. This time it got closer and closer, and yet no one listened to to his warning. How frustrated must have been for him. I heard a story. There was a person by the Holocaust who was in a town, and where he was, the Nazis came, and they all had to run away. They had to leave. And he finally traveled home and it took him a little while. He made it to his house. And his parents said, why are you here? You're in yeshiva. He said, no, the Nazis came. We had to leave. We escaped. And he said, please, the Nazis are in Poland. They're not here. They're not coming here. And he told them over and over again. And they didn't believe him. No one believed him. That's happening in Poland. It's not happening here. Finally, he got together with a group of friends and they decide to run away. Well, how long could they be away for? It was very hard to be on their own. And a few weeks later, they came back for their families. Unfortunately, when they got back, their whole town was gone and was taken by the Nazis in Mahshimon. How frustrating that must be. When you know something's happening, you're warning and you're warning and you're warning people and they don't listen. That's exactly what Yirmiyahu was going through, warning them about this. How frustrating it must have been. And it says that after the Yidin, the destruction of the Beis Hamidrash, and the Yidin were taken away, Yemiel wanted to comfort them. So he saw footprints of blood. And he followed the road. And he came, and he was so sad. He was kissing the footprints. He felt so bad for them. And finally he cut up to them, and he embraced them, and he kissed them. And he said, you see, you see the consequences of not listening to my nevuah. At that point, he stayed with them, he was mechazing them, and then he had to leave to go back. And they turned to him and said, no, 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 don't leave us, don't leave us. And they started to cry. Don't leave us, Yermio. And Yermio turns to them and he says, I swear, had you cried even one tear when the base of English was still standing, this would not have happened. Had you cried just but one tear, instead you ignored the whole thing. And that's what they said, Al Nares Bavel, Sham Yoshavnu Gambachin. There they cried. When Yerushalayim, the base Migdash was still standing, they did not. Because they didn't care, they didn't believe it. Now that it happened over there, Sham Yoshavnu, there they cried. How frustrating it must have been. Look at the kin itself. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Yemiel runs to the graves of the Avis. And he goes over to Avram. And he says, Avram, how could you lie still? Go, go do something. And Avram goes to Hashem. He says, Did I go through the tennis for nothing? And this is what you're doing to my children? What happened to Vayef, Tachas, Altir of Ram? What happened? Don't be afraid of Ram. Well, now I'm very afraid. My children are being taken out of Eretz Yisrael. And Hashem responds, Who told them to go and do Avayda Zara? He goes to Yitzchak and he cries. Yitzchak cries out before Hashem. He says, It was for nothing that it was written in the Torah of Ein Zari, Nishchak, Nimchak, that I'm going to go and be a carbon. What happened to, to my Avtacha? He says, what do you mean? 
they went Mari Maria. They did avoid the Zara again. They contaminated Har Maria. Then he goes to Yaakov, and Yaakov says the same thing. How could you go and and send them out? And again he says, What do you mean? They went and they they killed the Navi Zechariah. Then he goes to the Raya Nehemah and he goes to Moshe and Moshe Davins and he says, What happened? And Leah Davins and Gemara says, Zilpa and Bila and nobody can go and save Klaisal except for Rachel. Rachel Rachel cries for her children and that Hashem listens to. Why did Hashem listen to Rachel more than anybody else? Because she tells Hashem, Hashem, what are you jealous of? You're jealous of rocks and stones? The Jews worship rocks and stones. Big deal, rocks and stones, what are they already? I had to give over the secret words to my sister, and she married the one I was supposed to marry. And I couldn't let her be embarrassed. So instead, I let her marry Yaakov. So I shouldn't. So she shouldn't get embarrassed. And you, Hashem, and I wasn't jealous of her. And you, Hashem, are jealous of rocks and stones. And Hashem, Hashem, listen. Those are the famous words. Hashem, There's a sound coming from Rama up on high. Rachel Mavakov and now Rachel's crying for her children. And her only one, Hashem answers and he says, Stop your, your." Boys from crying, because you're going to get paid back. And that was the reward for what Rachel did. It's well known the story of Chaim Shmulevitz that he would go to different places, different kavarim to daven, different times of the year. Before Yom Noraim, he would go to Yad Shalom. He went to different places. And he used to go also to Kaver Rachel. One time, he had a driver, a bocher, this fellow actually, a bocher from England, and he was driving him, and he would drive him to different places at different times of the year. And every time he came somewhere, he was able to daven with Rukhaim Shmulevitz. This time, when he came to Kei Rukhaim Shmulevitz says, you know, please, if you don't mind waiting right outside. The bocher knew, of course, this is the one place he must listen then. And he went in after Rukhaim Shmulevitz, and he heard him davening and crying and saying, tell him, and finally, when he finished, he says, Mama Rachel, Hashem tells you not to cry, but I'm begging you, Rachel, cry, cry for us. We need so much. Please don't be quiet. Vaint, Mama, vaint. Cry for us. And he bursts out crying. He finished, and he leaves. On the way back, the Bachar turns to Rechaim, he says, I have to apologize. I didn't really follow what Roshina said, but it's one question. Because Baruch Hu tells Rachel to stop crying. How could the Rosh Shiva tell Rachel to cry? Because Baruch Hu said not to cry. So Chayn Shalavitz looks at him. He says, Baruch Hu, you should know that a parent, when he's with his child, and it's frightening, it's frightening for the child. The parent knows what's going on. The parent's in control. The parent understands the big picture. So because Baruch Hu can tell Rachel, Rachel, don't cry. I'm King Rachel, vainished. Don't cry, Rachel. A parent can tell a child not to cry. But a child can always ask a parent to cry. And therefore, even if a Kaj Baruch tells Rachel not to cry, I can ask my mama Rachel to cry because we need so much. Vaint, mama, vaint, and don't stop crying.
The next kindle we'll be saying is kindle Amid Aleph. Uh, after we finish going through the kindle, we will sing it. There's a minute to sing it with a specific nigan, which we'll do near Tashem. The minute starts, this, the, the kinna starts, Eshtuka Bikirbi Balaisi Alibi Bitsesim in Mitzrayim. A fire burned within me. <coughs> but I recall what happened when we left Mitzrayim. Kinim Oira Lamanas Kira Bitsesim in Mitzrayim. But I, I cry out when I remember what happened when we left Yerushalayim. This kinna is a kinna, a study in contrast of all the how good we had it when we left Mitzrayim. We were getting ready to leave, we're embarking, we're becoming a new nation, we're going to receive the terror, going into Eretz Yisrael. And the contrast is, B'tseisi, near Shalayim, what happened, how downtrodden, and on the way down we were, when we, when we were leaving Yerushalayim. And, the happiness we had when we were leaving Mitzrayim, the sadness we had when we were leaving Yerushalayim. Interestingly enough, that the, the night of the past Pesach every year will always be on the same night as Tishavah. For example, last year, this past Pesach was Friday night, and this year Tishavah well, was last night, uh, Friday night, Nitka, but it's on a Friday night. And whatever day, night of the Seder will be on, the following Tishavah will be on the same night. And that's the contrast of the Tesi Mitzrayim, the Tesi Mirushalayim. It's interesting when when the Eden were forced out of Spain in 1492. It was uh, it was a terrible thing. Queen Isabel in 1482, together with King Ferdinand, already started the Inquisition to deal with the Jewish problem in 1482, and that's when they appointed uh, Thomas Trecamado, the Dominican monk, to oversee it, and it was very very powerful. However, there was a very wealthy family, the Sonico, Sonsino, I'm sorry, the Sonsino family, very, very wealthy family from Italy. They were able to give them money and to push it off. But eventually, on March 31st, 1492, years later, they signed the edict this, um, expelling all the Jews from Spain unless they uh, convert to Christianity. They had a few months to either convert or leave. At the end of July, a few months later, over 200,000 Jews left. But they left all the worldly possessions behind. They couldn't sell them because nobody wanted them to pay. Because they knew they have to leave anyways. They give them a few pennies on a the dollar. <clears throat> they have to leave their clothing, their furniture, everything behind. The last few Jews start to make their way out of the country. And at the end, the final date was August 2nd, 1492 which we all know was Tisha B'Av. On that day, everybody had to leave. If they stayed behind and they did not convert, they would get killed. They were traveling. The elderly had some donkeys to ride them, but everyone else was going, carrying whatever possessions they can carry because they couldn't sell anything. Along the way, the Christians would come. They felt sorry for them. And they said, oh, maybe you should stay. All you have to do is convert. You should stay. Be baptized and stay. And to the Jews' credit, nobody did at that, from that group that was leaving. However, it was very, very frightening. It was very, very depressing. 
And even though it was Tishrav, the Rabbanim told people there that had instruments that they should play instruments. And they said a Jew only cries when he is expelled from Eretz Yisrael. A Jew that's expelled from another country, it may be sad, it may be difficult, it may be depressing, it may be tragic, but we don't cry. A Jew only cries when we're kicked out of Eretz Yisrael. And as the Kinnah goes on, the lesson is very clear of the study in contrast again of Betesi Mitzrayim and Betesi Mitzrayim. It also shows us that when we are on top, when we're doing good, we're mamish on top. And yet, we don't listen to Hashem. We're not mediocre, we're not in the middle. Unfortunately, Leilena, we fall all the way, all the way to the very bottom. In fact, Medish, uh, there's a Sefer in Eichel called Sefer Lechem Dima, written by a contemporary of the Rizal. And he brings down a Medrash that the ladies in Mitzrayim had to work very hard. And they worked hard to help their husbands fulfill their quota of bricks that they had to make. And they would have to go and take the straw, mix it with water in a hole, they mix it together, and the Egyptians in order to make things more exciting for them, would add in a lot of thorns to the straw. So when they were mixing it and squeezing it, their hands were getting bloody. And it was very difficult to work. And while they were doing that, unfortunately there was a lady helping her husband who was pregnant, and she miscarried. And they knew that baby fell, but she had no time to stop working, and, and the baby was inside and had to keep on working. And the baby was built into a brick, the Medrash tells them, Malaf came down and took the brick with the fetus inside and brought her up to Kodesh Baruch and said, Hashem, look at what's become of your children. Look, look. Hashem took the brick and he placed it near his throne, by his feet near his throne. And this time, any time you did something wrong, looking at the stone made him have compassion and mercy. That was all from B'tseisim and Mitzrayim. However, later on, for the Furban, the Yidim were doing so much of a Zara. And Hashem's anger, he took the stone, and he didn't want to have it next to him anymore, and he threw it down. And that is our B'tseisim Yerushalayim. And that's the passage we say in Eicha, Hashach Mishamayim, Eretz, Teferis, Yisrael, Veloi Zachar Hadam, Ragla B'yei Mafei. Hashem cast down from heaven the, the earth of His glory, from Yisrael. He did not want to remember His footstool on the day of his wrath. So we look around what is now, how Hashem dealt with us, and how Hashem dealt with us, because when we fall down, we fall down very, very low. In fact, the Gemara tells us in Exubus, the story of Nagdim and Shulgurion. The story of Nagdim and Ben-Gurion he was once traveling and he saw a lady and the lady was going over to him and said, please, I need something to eat. Rabbi Yechim sorry, was traveling and he took, Rabbi Yechim was traveling and he saw, he saw a little, a, a young, a young lady gathering kernels of barley that were mixed in from the dung of animals and she was picking out 
from the dung of the animals, pearlies, kernels of barley. And when she saw him, she she covered her hair and she covered herself. She runs over to him and she goes, "Help me! Help me! Feed me!" So he says, "My daughter, who are you?" He says, "I am the daughter of Nakdimon ben Guria." She says, "Where did all the money of your parents go?" Because we know that when she got married, she got a tremendous amount of money, and she said the money was all lost. She says, "But you yourself remember you signed." You signed my ksuba. I got a million dinner of gold from my father and a million dinner of gold from my father-in-law. And it's all gone. So Yechem Zakai said, Ashreichem Yisrael, fortunate are you Yisrael. There's man sha'isin ritzayne shomakayim. When they do the will of Hashem, ain koluma v'loshen shalatis behem. No nation can rule over them. There's man sha'in ha'isin ritzayne shomakayim. But when they don't do the will of Hashem, He delivers them into the hand of a lowly nation, and not only the hand of a lowly nation, even to the hand, even to, of, the, of an animal of the lowly, of the lowly nation. And this is what happened to ha- had to happen to us when we were high. We're very high, and unfortunately, when we're low, we are very low. And if we look all the way at the end, however, it's on a more uplifting note. We say, we finish off the tasting of Mitzrayim. However, Hushlach Hanazer, Balfas Ha'ezer, but it's going to be very good. It's tasting, um, sorry. I remember the wonderful things we had when we left Mitzrayim. Sasim V'Simcha V'Nasyogim V'Anocha, the gladness and the joy and the the anguish will flee, we'll have just gladness and joy, the Shuvi Yerushalayim, we'll return to Yerushalayim. The question we have to think about is, what are we supposed to do in between? How do we get? So we see the contrast, but how do we get from the Tzaisi Yerushalayim until the Shuvi Yerushalayim? How do, how do we match that? How do we get there? And a person should never think that if you're in a situation, our task is simply to get out of that situation. Because Hashem didn't put us anywhere by mistake. Hashem never says, oops, I can't believe you're there. How did that happen? If we're in a situation, it's there because Hashem wants us to be there. So how do we match? How do we get from Vatsesi Yerushalayim to Vishuvi Yerushalayim to return to Yerushalayim? Many years ago, there was a fellow who was by a chasna. He would enjoy going to chasna's lake. He early for the chuppah. And he went to the chuppah. And he would come into the chuppah room early. One time he comes inside and sees there's an elderly person sitting there. So he goes over to the person, Shalom Aleichem. Thanks to Aleichem Shalom. And he's sitting there and he sees her tears coming down this person's eyes. He says, sir, is everything okay? He says, yeah, everything's fine. He says, oh, those are tears of happiness. He says, no, they're tears of remembrance. Tears of remembrance. No one's in this room. What are, what are you thinking about? What are you remembering? He says, it's a long story. You want to hear it? He says, sure, no one's here. Until everyone comes in for the chuppah, why not? He says, okay. So many years ago, I was in Auschwitz. I was stuck in Auschwitz. 
I was actually there with a whole group of friends. And as the weeks went on, they were disappearing. Killed, starved to death, chewed up by dogs. Some of them couldn't take it anymore. They simply ran to the fence just to end it all. Somehow I held on. Somehow I held on. And one day, it was towards the beginning of the winter, and it was starting to get cold outside. We finished work, I was walking back to the barracks, and I just collapsed. I, I couldn't go anymore. I was starving. I had no food. I just collapsed. I fell asleep. I, I just I was unconscious. When I was unconscious, I started to have a dream. And in this dream, there was an elderly person with a very nice looking face. And he says, what's wrong? I said, what do you mean, what's wrong? I'm starving to death. He says, so what are you going to do about it? He said, well, nothing, what can I do about it? I'm stuck in Auschwitz. He says, why don't you dive into Hashem? I said, you know, you're right. I started to dive into Hashem. I said, Hashem, you run the whole world. Give me a slice of bread. Everything belongs to you. Give me a slice of bread. All I want is a slice of bread. And the person in the dream, standing there, and when I finish, he turns to me, he goes, that's it? I said, what do you mean that's it? He said, well, why are you asking Hashem for, for a slice of bread? He says, I need a slice of bread. He says, well, do you think Hashem can give you a slice of bread? He goes, of course, that's why I'm diving to him. He says, is that all you need is a slice of bread? Need much more, but I have at least a slice of bread, I'll stay alive. He says, You're a fool. I'm a fool? Why am I a fool? He says, Because if you believe that Hashem can provide for you, why are you asking him for a slice of bread? Ask him for a whole loaf of bread. A loaf of bread. A loaf of bread. Who gets a loaf of bread in Auschwitz? A loaf of bread. He says, You know what? It's a dream, anyways. I dive into Hashem for a loaf of bread. For Hashem, the whole world is yours. Please, I'm dying. Give me a loaf of bread. The person looks at me and says, You're a fool. I'm a fool? Why am I? He says, What are you going to do? You want to stay stuck here forever? He says, what are you talking about? He says, Don't you want to get out of here? Why don't you dive into Hashem to get you out of here? He says, You know, you're right. I dive into Hashem that I should get free from here. I should get free to life. The person looks at me and says, you're a fool. Why am I a fool? What now? He says, what are you going to do to get out of here? Don't you have to eat? Don't you leave here also? He says, you know, you're right. I got to Hashem that I should get out of here. And that I should have pranasa once I leave the camp. I should always have pranasa. The person looks at me and says, you're a fool. Again, now why am I a fool? He says, you want to live your life by yourself? Don't you want to get married? I want to get married. Here, I'm thinking about Auschwitz, everyone's getting killed, I want to get married. You know what? There's a daven for that. When I daven to Hashem, I should find my zivik. Right when I get out, I should be happily married. The person looks at me and says, You're a fool. And now what? Why am I a fool now? He says, You want to be married? Don't you want to have children? He says, No, you're right. You're right. I daven to Hashem at that time, I should have children. The guy looks at me and says, you're a fool. 
Now we're, what, what, what are I full now? He says, don't you want to go and see your children get married? It's like diving to Hashem that my children should get married, I should see them get married. And the fellow looks at me and says, you're a fool. He says, still what? He says, don't you want your children to have children? He says, no, you're right. And I dive into Hashem, sitting and lying in the freezing cold in Auschwitz. I dive into Hashem that my children should have children. And the fellow with the beautiful face looks at me and says, You're a fool! Well, why now? He says, Don't you want to see your grandchildren get married? He says, No, you're right. And I dive into Hashem. And my grandchildren should get married, and I should attend their weddings, I should have to dance by their weddings. And before anything can happen, he went away. The next thing I knew, I was being carried inside by a few people, and they laid me on my bed. It was just a few weeks later, we were liberated from Auschwitz. Indeed, I got married at Parnassa. I had children and I married them off. Tonight, I'm sitting waiting for the chuppah of my oldest grandchild. So these tears, I'm thinking back to all those years ago and all the chesed Hashem did to me. And that is a lesson we have to understand that if we are put in a situation, we are not put there just so we can get out. We are put there to accomplish something. Which means Hashem said, right now you're going to be successful if you accomplish what you're supposed to accomplish. Don't just use it to accomplish over here. Have a bigger view. Have a bigger picture. Don't be a fool. And if we are in Gullus now, it's not because Hashem can't take us out of Gullus. It's because Hashem is giving us the opportunity to do things that we will not be able to do once Mashiach comes. Chavetz Chaim said over many times, the Mashiach is ready to come. It's a chesed that he's not coming because we have so much more that we can accomplish. Those of us who are not kahana, we can daven say karbonis. Hashem says we say karbonis every day. It's as if you're bringing karbonis. I can't bring karbonis when Mashiach comes, but now I could. I can say the Yankipper of on Yankipper. But once Mashiach comes, only the Kangalu gets to go in. There are many things that we can accomplish. And if we're in this situation, it's because the Christ Baruch puts us here, it's because we are meant to accomplish things. And therefore, if we want to go and switch over from B'tseisi in Mitzrayim to B'shuvi in Yerushalayim, to return to Yerushalayim, we have to make sure that we use our time well and we accomplish all that we should accomplish. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.